For too long, we thought we could bend the world to suit just us, the human race. No more. As we face the challenges of climate change, inequality and environmental degradation, we know that to simply sustain is not enough. We need to regenerate. A regenerative future is one where people and our planet flourish, hand in hand in the long term. At the RSA, we're building a programme that brings people and ideas together to show how this could look, act and feel. Join the regeneration. Visit the rsa.org forward slash regenerative dash futures. Hello. The summer of 1981 was hot. I should have spent it travelling Europe or going to the very small number of festivals in England. Instead, I spent most of my time watching the Ashes cricket unfold and campaigning with my friend Richard for Tony Benn, the darling of the left, to beat Dennis Healy, the moderate, for the deputy leadership of the Labour Party. On the day the result was to be announced, Richard and I sat in front of a flickering black and white television. Suddenly, something shifted in my mind. I turned to Richard and I said, you do know the party will destroy itself if Ben wins. He looked back at me and slowly nodded his head. From nowhere, my conversion from left-wing ideologue to soggy centrist had begun. Forty years. That's how long I have to reach back to find a clear-cut example of changing my mind about my beliefs. What about you? In matters of controversy, do you weigh up the arguments, assess the options and go with the evidence? Or do you see what the people in your tribe think and assume it must be right? You may think the former, but I suspect my guests today will tell you it's the latter. But will they change your mind? Let's find out. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. In a first for Bridges, I'm joined by three guests, Alison Goldsworthy, Laura Osborne and Alex Chesterfield. They're authors of a new book, Poles Apart, Why People Turn Against Each Other and How to Bring Them Together. And they're also joint hosts of the successful podcast, Change My Mind. So I want to start by asking each of you the question you ask your readers and your guests. So I'll start with you, Alison. When have you changed your beliefs and why? Oh, I've changed my mind quite a lot. But the example I tend to give here is about public funding for the arts, which I used to think was completely unnecessary. I didn't see why there was a need for any greater cultural depth than Britney Spears, of whom I am a significant fan. And I thought if it was commercially viable, then let it live. And if it wasn't commercially viable, then then don't. I realised this is a brave thing to say to someone who headed up the RSA for um, more than a decade. And I realised in hindsight how completely idiotic and wrong that view was that actually uh, is a tremendously important form of expression, a really important way to build bridges and a good way to scrutinise people often. And that really my my issue with it is that I'm not very good at art and I'm not very creative or artistic. And because I found it hard, I didn't think anybody else should get support, which is a terrible thing to say, really. But at least I'm aware that that's how I used to think now. So... 
to reassure you, the RSA isn't really an arts organisation, and, <laughs> and I'm a philistine, so so don't worry about that. But when I go back to that 1981 example, I don't really know what happened. I mean, I think there was a uh, there was something building up in my mind, and I pushed it away and pushed it away and pushed it away, and then when I realised what was about to unfold, I just reached that kind of tipping point. So. As I ask each of you when you've changed your mind, I'm interested in whether your process exemplifies some of the principles, some of the ideas in your book. So, Alison, what was it that led you to go from being art sceptic to being a supporter of state-funded arts? Yeah, it was actually my friend Sean, who lives out in Chicago. And Sean does amazing work on peace and reconciliation through dance, which had never even occurred to me before as a way that physically touching and getting close to each other and being able to express yourself that way might be really very effective for people. And then I saw the work that she did with young people and particularly young people who might have had less access to formal education and how critical and vital it was for identities that might have been marginalised. So she did work in the former Yugoslavia, so in Bosnia, and I could actually see parallels you know into into countries that weren't war-torn and I just thought gosh how wrong was I that I thought this didn't have value and to put it in the context of the ideas in the book I'm sure the fact that Sean had become a friend of mine really helped that and that I wanted to she became my part of my group and someone I, I wanted to do things with and to support and to see value in her work and on a subtext level because this is often more about feelings and groupishness than facts i'd put money on the fact that that helped change my position yeah i mean i i think i could actually make a contribution to peace and reconciliation through dancing because i dance so badly that if i did it even the most polarized people would be joined in a combination of pity and 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 hilarity but it's interesting so in that example it almost feels as though what really happened was that you had a, an opinion, a kind of scepticism towards arts funding, which wasn't shared by the people that you would broadly see as in your tribe. And it was only, it was when you saw that other people in your tribe didn't hold that view that you, as it were, brought it into line. So this wasn't so much an example of kind of different thinking. It was it was you correcting a bit of your thinking that didn't fit in with the tribe. Is that is, is that unfair? Um, so I don't normally talk about this. <laughs> Um, but uh, it is slightly in that my uncle's quite a successful musician. So you know what it's like. You do it to other people. Oh, all the time. You wait for what's coming, Matthew. Um, but uh, my uncle's actually quite a successful musician in his own right. And he is definitely part of my own tribe. And so I feel particularly embarrassed, actually. God, I hope he doesn't listen to this, that, that maybe I didn't value his work as much as I should. Have done. And he really, you know, he really has changed the world with what he's done and brought about quite significant change. And yeah, so I think there is, it was as much as anything that I found it difficult and I struggled with it. And that wasn't how I identified was as any kind of person who could express myself creatively. And so I, I just didn't value it, which is pretty appalling really so laura let's put you in the hot seat give us an example of of when you've changed your mind and and the extent to which that exemplifies themes in the book Mm. thanks matthew so i've changed my mind on the monarchy i used to think the whole thing was a total waste of time waste of money didn't serve any purpose and 
Actually, it was my husband who started to question me on that belief because he's a bit more of a traditionalist. And, you know, I grew up with a dad who's very much a contrarian. So I grew up hearing, you know, the monarchy's waste of time, religion's a waste of time, you know, and I, I didn't really think about it an enormous amount. I don't think I sort of absorbed those beliefs as, you know, we do. We're a product of our environment, aren't we, as much as as much as other things. So yeah, I think as I was questioned on it, and this is something, you know, Alex does delve into a lot in the book, is when I tried to pick apart the reasons for my beliefs and justify it, I really didn't have much to say, you know, and I started to look around and think actually people who do value the monarchy, and I think particularly the Queen, you know, find they take a lot of comfort from it. They find it a really important part of life in the UK. And I sort of started to feel like maybe I'd been a bit arrogant. You know, who am I to say this entire thing that means a lot to other people is a waste of time just because, you know, it's not necessarily my you know, personal preference to sort of support this system. So yeah, I think it was not not an immediate overnight thing, but that kind of being questioned and asked, well, why do you actually think that? And sometimes I think it's just, you know, certainly I found with some of the beliefs I've held since I was younger, that actually I just absorbed it, you know, and, and then I enjoyed the slightly contrarian nature of it. So it stuck with it because it was, you know, fun in an argument, but actually, you know, not very well, not very well based. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I fundamentally changed my view about the honours system when I was given mm. a CBE. But this could shift in your view of the monarchy. I mean, some people would say, well, that's just you getting a bit older, really, that, that kind of kicking against the establishment is what young people do. And as you get a bit older, it, it kind of loses its appeal. I don't know. My dad's 72 and he's still doing it. So <laughs> Good for him. That's good for him. So I guess the point there is as your circumstances change, maybe a little mm. bit, as your reference points change a little bit, that can be one thing that contributes to changing your mind. Yeah, I think that's true. And actually, one of the things, as I said, I realised was my husband coming from a slightly different background to me and with different views. You know, some of the things that I thought it was sort of fun to tear down mean a lot to him. And so I think you're right. I think sometimes, you know, the people and we, we, you know, obviously we talk about this, the the people you spend time with and the people that, you know, come to shape your opinions, it is often those people that change your mind in part because you care about them. But of course, the problem there is, as John Yates pointed out in his wonderful recent book, and we had that on the podcast, the problem is we overwhelmingly spend time with people like ourselves. But Alex, on to you and your example of your Damascene moment. (laughs) Indeed. So I think mine was changing my mind on the role of prison. So in my earlier years, much as your opening story, I was definitely a proponent or fan of kind of a Hangham and Floggham type approach to crime and that prison should be really shocking to, to deter people from committing crime. And I wouldn't say it was an overnight changing my mind at all. So there wasn't really a Damascene moment. It was more of a, I think, gradual reflection with two, I guess, two broad catalysts for for change. So one was just studying more around behavioural science and how we make decisions and, and judgments. And I think a lot of the time, a lot of people attribute what we do and what we think to the individual. And that, that in itself actually is a, a psychological bias, something called the fundamental attribution error. So, you know, for example, when organisations fail, we like to find someone to blame. And actually studying more formally psychology and and behavioural science began to realise actually the effect of context and our behaviours. And it's a really often a complex interaction factor between who we are as individuals and the world around us. So 
not that I'm an expert at all on the causes of crime or called criminology, but just began to appreciate more actually that there are a lot of factors outside people's control that might influence why they might go on to commit a crime. So for example, you know, poverty or more structural factors that are really outside an individual's control. And I think related to that is again in my job, so in, in kind of policy type context and then at the regulator was uh, exposed more and more, I guess, to the value of evidence and the importance of randomised controlled trials when when trying to make decisions. And one of the examples that I used to talk about a lot to audiences was the Scared Straight programme. I'm sure you're familiar with that. So just very briefly for listeners, Scared Straight was a a programme, I think it started off in the States, and the idea was to take young people at risk of, or higher risk of committing crimes, into prisons to literally scare them straight to put them off. And for years, it was thought to be an effective way to reduce the risk of crime rates. And then some researchers did a kind of rigorous evaluation of it and actually found the opposite effect. So that young people who went through the program were actually more likely to end up committing crime because it was seen as a, a kind of almost like a you know, status or had some kind of glamour about it. So it's the importance of evidence. But interestingly, and this comes back to the ideas in the book, more generally, when trying to change people's mind, we find that actually relying solely on facts typically doesn't work and actually, again, can often backfire. So interesting, although I think that was one of my reasons, I wouldn't say that holds more broadly and wouldn't recommend it necessarily as a strategy. And then the second was I am a member of the Conservative Party and was elected as a local councillor and have been active since my early early 20s. So I think, again, in my youth, which seems a very long time ago now, I think meeting other people in the Conservative Party who had that group, you know, who were from my tribe, meeting others who actually had quite different views on the role of prisons and the importance of rehabilitation and and evidence, again, I think almost gave me permission that it was okay to have a different view from what might be more a stereotypical view of of what conservatives think about crime. So I think it was those those two things. And as I think Laura and Ali have both said, that is something in the book that we pick up on around, I guess, talking to others with different views and just, just literally contact with the other side can help. So I have a vision of the perfect institution now being a a prison where the governor is Prince Harry and the prisoners spend their time in this open institution using art as a way of addressing their personal challenges. This is this is your this is your collectively perfectly designed institution. I, I can't wait for you to write another manifesto, Matthew. <laughs> I'm not sure the Daily Mail will be a great fan of this institution. Now, a lot of the book is about how we tend to be more tribal, more driven by emotion than we like to imagine. So tell me, Alison, for people listening, you think, no, that's not true of me. No, I'm I'm very pragmatic, evidence-driven. What bit of evidence would you like to cite that might make people realize that what actually drives them isn't what they think? Oh, gosh. So I suppose a study that I'll reach for here, um, and Alex may want to, to chip in as well, but is one that Mark Levine did looking at sports teams and the effect that identity and how you prime identity might have on people's behaviour. So he got some Manchester United fans and put them all in a room together in one building and then asked them really primed them to talk about how much they loved Manchester United and then asked them to walk from one building to another and there was a confederate or an actor on the way that was wearing either a Manchester United shirt or a Liverpool shirt or a 
shirt that was just normal and didn't reflect football at all. And that person would fall over and they would stop to see how many people would try and help them. And you'd think most people would be like, oh, I help people in distress. Of course I do. You know, I'd, I'd stop and help someone. Well, actually, if it was somebody wearing the opposing shirt, you know, a, a Liverpool or a, a non and they weren't from their own group, so they weren't a Manchester United fan, they stopped to help them about 30% of the time. And then Levine repeated the study again another time. And this time, rather than priming them on their identity to Manchester United, they got them to talk about a shared love of football. And that time, about 80 or 90% of people stopped to help the person, the actor who had fallen over and hurt themselves. And I think that shows a few things. But but one of them, to answer your question, is the role that group identity can have on behaviour and how it's primed, even if that's not how you think you would behave. You know, I bet if you asked most of those study parties participants, they'd say, I'm the type of person that helps people in trouble. Well, they are, but more so when it's from their own tribe. Alex, do you want to offer any other evidence? Yeah, I was going to bring in an example, actually, from an academic at Yale, so Dan Cahan. And what he did was he was running a study at the university and he brought together a bunch of participants. And the first thing he did was assess volunteers' natural maths ability. And then he asked them to answer questions about crime data for cities that ban handguns and and for those that, that don't. And he found that once the kind of political or ideological dimension was added, mathematical ability stopped being a reliable guide to the accuracy of participants' answers. So whereas liberals tended to be good at solving the problem when the correct answer proved that gun control reduced crime, conservatives were better when the answer proved the opposite. So people with high, you know, better math skills were unable to reason analytically when the correct answer collided with their political beliefs. I think that's a really nice example. And also, this is quite a controversial theory. So I wouldn't say there's particularly, there's loads of evidence underpinning this. But one controversial theory that's been used to explain this is that people who score highly on various, I guess, cognitive skills, so for example, political sophistication, science literacy, cognitive reflections, the ability to reflect on why we think what we think, and the most likely to express beliefs that align with those of their tribal or partisan identities. And the reason is, is that people can use their advanced reasoning capacities to form and then maintain their beliefs that support their identity. And that is quite a controversial theory. But again, it goes against, I think, probably, you know, all of us um, and probably most of the listeners thinking, oh, well, I know I do weigh up information and I, I do think in a particular way and I'm very reasoned. The, the likelihood is possibly not. And you've just made me think, actually, Alex, about the shape sorting exercise that we look at in the book as well. You know, that you would think that when people needed to sort a load of shapes in a study, they would ask the people who'd been proved beforehand to have the best skills for that task. But actually, once the political leanings of those people are known, people will lean towards their own partisan groupings rather than the people who have the better skills. So, which raises really you know, important questions about the experts that we seek out and, you know, the way that we evaluate information and make choices about that. Yeah. And I think part of that argument is that people who may view themselves more as intellectuals, one of the problems of of having those kind of capacities is an almost infinite ability to rationalize when you hear something that you don't agree with. There's There's a wonderful bit in the film, The Big Chill, when William Hurt is in conversation with Jeff Goldblum. And William Hurt says, well, isn't that a bit of a rationalisation? And Jeff Goldblum says, well, don't knock rationalisation. It's more important than sex. And William Hurt says, what? And Jeff Goldblum says, ask yourself, have you ever gone a week without a rationalisation? 
<laughs> so yes, our capacity to endlessly rationalise our views, I think, is, is 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 one of the points that you make. Now let's move on to another bit of the argument, which is that this this kind of tribalism, this capacity we have to defy the evidence and stick instead to that which we already believe or our tribes believe, can then kind of generate an escalating process of polarization in society. Laura, do you want to kind of talk about the relationship between this evidence about who we are and also what we can observe going on in many parts of the world? Yeah, thank you, Matthew. So one of the things that we noticed, and you know, we're not we're not the first to have picked it out, of course, is that this phenomenon affects a lot of things about the way we live. And, you know, that goes beyond politics to who we marry and, you know, how we feel about the people our children marry as well. So, you know, we looked at a study that said, you know, 30 years ago, only 5% of Americans cared about whether their child married someone of a different political persuasion. And today, nearly half of Republicans, about a third of Democrats, say they'd be displeased if their child married a member of the opposing party. And it isn't limited to those personal relationships. You know, there's some really interesting work that we looked at as part of the book about the impact partisanship has on fund managers, you know, who are more likely to invest in funds run by co-partisans. In hiring, there's a really good study on the subtle political cues people give in CVs and what that means for their chances of being hiring, you know, as you would expect. That means it goes up for their in-group politically and down for their out-group, which, you know, raises really important questions about diversity and in innovation in the workforce. So, you know, we have seen this type of effective polarisation spill out into different areas, but we also know that it's exacerbated by inequality and uncertainty. So, you know, to go back to that part of your question, in the world we live in today where uncertainty is extremely high, where, you know, after the financial crash, there have been a number of other issues, you know, not least the pandemic, that have really unsettled people around the world. And that, you know, raises big questions for us because when that happens, people cling much more tightly to their group identities. And we know that once that starts to happen, their behaviour in all these different parts of our lives changes. Um, Alex, I don't know if you want to add anything there. So I think one of the main points to take away is that we have this ancient capacity for tribalism, you know, we're all motivated to form and divide into groups where there's often an us and them. But at this point in history, there's a whole bunch of reasons why you know polarisation is getting worse because of the factors in the world around us. So, for example, as Laura mentioned, an increase in uncertainty, an increase in financial inequality, social media that exacerbate these innate ancient tribal capacities for us and them. And the social media, the way you know those business models are incentivized, is I think a really symbolic of of how what it is about us as individuals and the world around us that interact so for example we are motivated to read content that confirms our existing views and that supports our tribes that is a massive incentive for producers of fake news to maximize the short-term profits from attracting clicks and reshares from consumers rather than seek a long-term reputation for quality that might not actually get those those short-term hits so the way we behave almost sets up these incentives for companies that then exacerbates and it becomes this unhealthy spiral. Another, I think, important lesson from history is that peace and reconciliation is slow, difficult work. And yet polarisation can work incredibly quickly. And the, the terrible tragedy of the breakup of Yugoslavia and the war is a, is a vivid example of, of how under those kinds of stresses, these tribal feelings can 
be activated and then things can get out of control very quickly. Now, you make all these arguments incredibly cogently in the book, which I, which I enjoyed reading. But th there was a kind of part of me that, that wondered why we need more evidence of all of this. I mean, I, I think I first kind of really got my head around these kinds of arguments when I read Joshua Green's Moral Tribes back in 2014. And of course, there's the work of Jonathan Haidt. And it's almost become a kind of commonplace, this, the fact that we are much more tribal than we think they are. And that made me, made me wonder, I mean, you, obviously, you're people who want to change the world, and you've written the book to try to influence us. Is there any evidence that knowing about our cognitive frailties actually helps us overcome them at all? Laura, what do you think? I think that's a really good question. I think that when we were putting the book together, what we were really keen to do was to try and get to that point where we could think about solutions as well as reiterating the problem. Because as you said, you know, telling people that they're wrong or, you know, throwing facts at them is not very effective. What we're trying to do, and I think what a lot of people working in this space are trying to do, is open that sort of chink of interest that makes people prepared to re-examine some of their own beliefs and to think about how we each behave in different contexts. So, you know, we come from different backgrounds, Ali, Alex and I, you know, from business, from politics, from behavioural science. And we wanted to combine that and think, well, actually, if we were thinking about this, you know, if we were in our jobs, if we were in our families, you know, what might make us do things slightly differently? So, you know, we tried hard to get that sort of encouraging tone, I suppose, that it isn't all doom and gloom, that we're all part of the problem here, but therefore we've all got the capacity to be part of the solution if we're prepared to do some things a bit differently day to day. And I mean, that's not to say there are no systemic issues here, because of course there are, but individually there are things that we can do. Well, why don't I put you all again in the hot seat and ask you each to tell us something that we can do to help mitigate these hardwired ancient characteristics that we have. But also you, the rule is when I ask you each to tell us something we can do, you've actually got to have done it yourself. So <laughs> let's start with you, Alex. And, and something that you can do and something that you've done yourself to stop you drifting into instinctive tribalism. <laughs> this is such a hard, this is a great but very hard question. Okay, so my one is actually, I guess, asking people about their, their beliefs in a bit more detail. So one thing that all of us are probably guilty of is something called the illusion of explanatory depth, which is where we think we understand how things work in much more detail than they actually do. And a bunch of researchers started this program of research asking people about how things like zips and fridges and you know, everyday products worked. And what they found was, is that when people are asked how these things work, so step by step, people really struggled and realised, actually, I know a lot less than I really do. And another bunch of researchers started applying this concept to political or kind of policy beliefs. And what they found was, is that when people realised that they maybe couldn't explain why their preferred policy in a step by step fashion wouldn't necessarily lead to the outcome that they believed in, it made people moderate their beliefs. And I'm trying to think of something now, how I have applied this in my own thinking. And it's probably something something around Brexit. So I did vote, I did vote Remain, but I was a bit of a fence sitter. And I'm trying to think now, why did I vote Remain? And what, if I was to apply that lens, could I explain step by step how voting Remain would benefit, there'd be a net benefit to most people in the UK? I'd actually really struggle. It was more just of a, feel, a feeling. So I'm guilty of not doing this, but I'm going to sit and think while Laura and Ali take the hot seat if there is a better example. 
Yeah, I mean, Brexit's not a great example because basically you were right, I was right, and all the other bloody people were wrong. So um, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'm being I'm being satirical, of course. So, <laughs> so Matthew, do you now think you were wrong if you're being satirical? <laughs> Um, I was wrong about what was going on in Britain. I was completely complacent about the outcome. I failed to appreciate what was driving people's view. I don't think I was wrong about the issue. And when I go down the local supermarket and there doesn't seem to be anything in it, I kind of slightly confirm. But no, so I think the point is actually that if you said to me, you should have changed your mind, I'm not going to do that because people don't change their mind in that kind of way. But if you said... Do you think the perception you had of the people who disagreed with you, the perception of what was going on in that debate, I'd say, yes, I was wrong about that. And then that's an opening, isn't it? That's an opening from which having recognized some element, having, as it were, it's a bit like a kind of windshield. You've, you know, you've, once you can open a little bit to the fresh air of new thinking, then more can It makes open. you more receptive. Yeah. So, uh, Laura, do you have an, an example of, of a technique that you have yourself used to keep your mind open? I do. So one of the things that really stayed with me when we were doing the thinking about the solutions was trying to adopt an understanding rather than a winning mindset, which is a very easy thing to say, but actually not always a very easy thing to do. You know, you're often thinking in a political argument or, you know, an, almost an argument of any nature that you need to be right, that your job in that debate is to come out winning. And actually, that is a thing that I've applied quite a lot since, that when people are putting forward something that I think, you know, somewhat instinctively I disagree with, is to properly listen first with understanding in mind, you know, see if there are areas of commonality and essentially, you know, not just try to beat them down with my alternative take on the world. And and that has helped me have better conversations. It really has slowed down that instinctive reaction. And Alison, give us an example of you ta- of you taking your own medicine. Yeah, no, I've definitely taken my own medicine. And one thing I've done is to try and fool myself a bit about what groups I'm a member of and to try and find something I have in common with someone that's not about politics. And therefore, I kind of, I, I feel that natural affinity with them and go from somewhere else. So, for example, in the last few years, I've become a powerlifter. I take, you know, fitness reasonably seriously compared to in, in my 20s. And that's introduced me to a completely different community of people who feel often very differently. And if I started a conversation with them by talking about politics, then, you know, we probably disagree quite quickly. But if I start by talking about fitness and, and building that in, then suddenly the conversations about politics become much easier for both of us. And particularly for me, I can feel myself getting less inflamed and less angry by their responses and more inclined to deploy some of the techniques that Alex and Laura have talked about. And we talk about more in the book too. So I've only got one kind of quibble with the book. So, but I've got to find out first who wrote the section in order that I can direct my oh. quibble to the right person. <laughs> Which of you wrote the section on deliberative democracy? <laughs> uh, it was a joint one between Laura and myself. Ah, right. Okay. So I just think you kind of give deliberative democracy one and a half cheers. And I think that's, that's not right because... You're right, of course, when you say that deliberative democracy has got to be set up in the right way, the right questions, the right facilitation. It's You've got to do it properly. And if you don't do it properly, it doesn't work at all. And you're also right that the big problem is that we do lots of deliberative democracy and politicians take no notice of it. And that leads to kind of cynicism. But I think that what you underestimate is that overwhelmingly well done deliberative democracy shows that people have a capacity 
to work with each other, to compromise, to think things through, to come up with pretty sensible conclusions. And that actually, if we want democracy to thrive, and you talk in the book about the need for new institutions, we desperately need to do democracy in a different kind of way. And deliberative democracy, which in some ways returns us to the origins of democracy with ordinary citizens participating, but does it in a very kind of structured way that if we had deliberation much more built into our democratic processes, locally, nationally, internationally, this would help because we would see our fellow citizens going on that kind of journey that people go on through deliberation as they listen to different views, as they come to respect other people, and as they are remarkably often able to reach consensus. So, Matthew, we, we did our research on you and we did predict that you might ask this question. And there's all sorts. So I spend, you know, it's, it's not the hat I wrote the book under, but I'm vice chair of one of the Roundtree Tests that does do some funding in this area. So I'm, I'm reasonably familiar with it. And I think my concern with deliberative democracy is not around it as a concept. As you say, it can be, when done right, tremendously effective. But there is a tendency for people to reach for it as a panacea. And it doesn't always work. And I really worry that, you know, done badly, the people will mitigate support for and the effectiveness of something that can be tremendously useful. And when we were researching the book, one of the most disappointing conversations I'll say that I had was with, I'll not name them, but with a, a world-renowned expert in the field <laughs> who you will be very familiar with. And the obsession with how to scale deliberative democracy, which happens much more effectively face-to-face, you can do it online. And I sort of chatted to him and he said, do you know what? I've got the solution to polarization and it's a bot it's a bot that will do deliberative democracy. And I just thought, I'm out. You know, I've spent years of my life manipulating, to be honest, millions of people to take actions online in my formal life as a rabble rouser. And I know exactly how that could play out. And I think that really devalues something that can be quite effective in trying to reduce reduce polarization. And that's why there's a slightly skeptical tone about how it can be used. It's not to say never use it or that it can't always work. I suppose I'm looking at the other side of the coin, the less optimistic side of the same coin that you are, so that people don't just reach for it as always a solution. And the other point that that Laura might want to build on is, yes, that clearly helps with the politics and where polarization has affected politics. But how does that help in the workplace where polarization has affected there or with your families? You know, there are many, many facets to how polarization and tribalism applies and deliberative democracy can and when done well often does help solve it in one element of those but is far from enough on its own i'm not sure you're persuaded (laughs) no 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 i'm kind of i'm half persuaded i i think that i've been around groups of deliberative democrats and it it is like being around groups of anything which is there are zealots (laughs) who don't help the cause and there are also kind of doctrinal disputes between different advocates of different forms of deliberative democracy and nothing annoys the deliberative democrat more than somebody who uh, supports deliberative democracy but supports a slightly different methodology so yes (laughs) like any group of enthusiasts deliberative democrats can often be their own their own worst enemy and and they do they do nothing but thrill people when they do that you know when you talk about research methodologies in in deliberative democracy it it is quite a niche activity (laughs) yeah i mean but but incredibly exciting for you (laughs) but yes (laughs) (laughs) I'm, i'm gonna i'm gonna close by asking all three of you the same question which is are you optimistic or pessimistic about 
the future. I mean, it is a it is a cliche that we become more and more polarized, and your book argues that polarization feeds itself. So that might lead you to a kind of pessimistic conclusion. But are you optimistic or pessimistic? And give us one thing which you think will most determine whether it's the regulation of social media or the emergence of new forms of political leadership, or I don't know, recognition of the climate crisis. One thing that you think will be a critical factor in determining whether or not we are able to find ways of overcoming our hardwiring, which we have to do because we are in a world of huge amounts of diversity and difference and change, and therefore we're just not going to be able to cope unless we can master these tendencies. So I'll start with you, Alex, optimist or pessimist, and give us one thing that you think will be a critical determinant. Yeah, I'm an optimist because I think our, our identity, so who we think we are, is inherently flexible. So rather than thinking about us as, as part of a particular group, we can think of ourselves as a wider group and something that we all have in common. So I'm an inherent optimist. Um, something we can do for me would probably be incentivizing and rewarding collaboration in political leadership. Yeah, great. Laura? So I'm also an optimist. You know, I was very struck when we were working on the book that polarisation ebbs and flows, but that there are things that can be done and there are safeguards in place You know, in parts of the world that stop it from spiralling to that dangerous level. I think if there was one thing that we should think about, you know, for me, it's about younger people. So there's a lot of discussion around generational divides and the big sort of massive issues like climate change that we face, but also studies in the book that show that for young people that makes populism quite appealing because it has this certainty and I think it's finding a way to engage younger people in the big issues of the day that makes democracy and the sort of more discursive end of democracy more appealing. And Alison? I'm a pessimist who will become an optimist. So I think things are likely to get worse before they get better. Things that aggravate polarisation include gaps between rich and poor and degrees of certainty. And if the pandemic has done one thing, it's going to lead to some government cuts in some format because of the level of borrowing. And, you know, the world is inherently quite uncertain at the minute. But we have depolarised before and hopefully we will do so again without a major resetting event. And I suppose one of the things that I'd be really interested to see people explore around that is actually around the role of trade and depolarisation. So there's some fascinating work that shows if you invest in the stock market of another country, even with very minimal amounts, then actually you become more interested in seeing democracy survive there and feel a greater affinity to those people. So if the government, for example, when we'd left the EU had given everybody some money to invest in stock markets within Europe, how much more warmly would we be feeling towards Europeans now? I think there's some really interesting government interventions that they could look at in that space. That's fascinating. Well, look, it's been fantastic to be joined by you. The book Polls Apart, Why People Turn Against Each Other and How to Bring Them Together is a is a, a great read. And also on your podcast app, you can listen to the many fascinating episodes of Changed My Mind. The last one of those featured Ed Owen that I work with under New Labour. And as I was listening to it, I was remembering that somebody once said to me, did you ever know Tony Blair to change his mind? And I said, yes, he did once say that he was wrong, but he said, I was wrong. I should have listened to myself earlier. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This 
was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen. Thank you for listening. Now, I'm far too modest to discuss my own book on this podcast, but, well, I'm not too modest to tell you about it. So if you're interested in work, the history of work, the nature of work, the future of work, and what we need to do to create a genuinely good work society, then why don't you check out my new book? It's called, Do We Need to Work? Thank you.